0: Messy Realities, The Secret Life of
1: Technology.
0: Hello, my name is Gemma Hughes. I'm a health services researcher at Oxford University and I with my colleagues and friends have put together this podcast series called Messy Realities, The Secret Life of Technology. The series describes how we took our research into assisted living technologies to the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford in search of some new meaning and inspiration. In this episode, I discuss the methods we use to engage with people with my colleagues Dr. Joe Wharton and Beth McDougall. This episode will be of particular interest to you if you are a researcher who wants to do some public engagement, looking for ideas of methods to try, or if you work in public engagement and you want to think of ways of helping researchers make their work accessible and relevant. As well as talking about what worked well for us, we're also going to touch on some of the things that didn't go so well. So you might also be able to learn from some of our mistakes. So, Jo, you are a senior researcher at Oxford University and you have a background in psychology and human-computer interaction. You've done quite a lot of co-production work in the past. Can you tell me a little bit about what co-production in research is?
2: So um, one of the major challenges of designing assisted living technologies is the people who develop it um, act somewhat as proxy representatives of the people who are expected to use it. And so often the technology may not quite meet people's needs or capabilities and it may not be grounded in the reality of, of living with the types of conditions or problems that um, the technology is designed to address. And so co-production is about bringing together various people, both users, developers, um, carers, and also other key stakeholders who may be in some way involved in the development or provision of the technology to um, look at solutions that meet everyone's interests um, and essentially can be more more useful and more workable within the real kind of contexts in which they're expected to be used. Um, a key principle of co-production is that um, people continually adapt and adapt to the technology within the kind of real world environment. And so a key principle should be to continually monitor and track how the technology is being um, applied and and adapted in use and continually feeding that back into the development process. So a key principle of of co-production is that it's essentially an ongoing process, it never really ends. Um, And um, from a a methodological point of view or a research point of view, a key challenge is how you capture those ongoing practices and, and feed those back into the design process.
0: So you have to spend time with people that use the technologies and understand how they're finding that in, 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 in short, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's about, you know, getting real in-depth understanding of people's real lives. Mm-hmm. And we've used all sorts of methods to try and capture that. Um, you know, you can do things like interviews and, and speak to the person and get their perspectives. Um, but actually, a, 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 to get a real understanding of how the technology is used, you need to um, you know observe their lives and you know, observe their the um, environment in which they use the technology um, and we've used other things like cultural probes where we ask the um, participant themselves to record you know problems with the technology using diaries we give them things like digital cameras to take pictures of the of, of, of technologies in you know in use or or, or take pictures of things that, you know, frustrate them about the technology. Um, And and all of this helps build a much richer um, account of of their lives. And it's actually a good way of teasing out the subtle but important aspects of the technology that are important to address, which I don't think would come out in these kind of one-off interviews that you might do. It's a much richer form of data collection. Mm -hmm.
0: You use the phrase cultural probes then, and you you explain that that might be, for example, a digital camera. Um, But those are um, things that you use, you ask people to collect information about their environment and how they use technologies. Is that that the right
2: definition of cultural Um, probe? Yes, the collecting of the information, but I suppose a key function of the cultural probe is to support the dialogue between the researcher and the participant. So sometimes they might take a picture of um, their computer, you know, if, they, if you've given them a device and, it, and it's it's flashing, you know, a light's flashing, they don't know what it what the, that means, they might take a picture of it. Um, and then when you speak to the participant, they'll show you the picture of that light flashing and that will just create a whole discussion around that, that, you know, the, the participant may not have remembered happened. Um, mm-hmm if you were to just interview them without any kind of pro-materials to stimulate discussion.
0: Mm. So we had a bit of a challenge when we came to work with you, Beth, at the museum, in that we wanted to explain our research in ways that were accessible to people that had maybe never done any research or didn't know anything about assisted living technologies. And I guess I saw you as someone that helped us to to, to do that, to connect our research with... um, some of the community groups we spoke to. So can you tell me a little bit, Beth, about your your role and about how you work with groups here at the museum?
1: So one of the things that I um, found of interest when you were talking about the um, methods behind the um, medical research or the application of co-production is that we do also co-produce with the museums, but one of the things that we are particularly concerned with is about creating the right social environment um, and making sure that um, everyone in that space feels that they're um, equal to each other, that um, that there's a warm, friendly welcome. So there's a lot of wraparound activity that happens before you even get into the room to start discussing some of the applications of the research or the um, objects themselves. Um, so with the work that I did, one of the um, key things was going out to people's environments, so outreach into... Um, groups, um, So we went to Young Dementia UK and we went to some of the local care homes um, and we looked for people that were already engaging with um, the community outreach department so that we could ensure that people already had an understanding of museum as a social space and that they felt um, happy in the environment because some of what we were discussing, particularly going into medical histories um, and needs, particularly um, I feel with the young dementia and memory problems, are very close and personal to people and it's not something that they would necessarily choose to share um, with uh, friends, never mind people that they hadn't um, met before. So um, much of that was uh, creating the right environment um, helping people to recognize my face, that they had a friendly face when they came into the museum, um, and thinking of ways in which we could articulate the research in a really simple way. So, um, if anyone's listened to any of the other podcasts, Tupperware has already been discussed, probably in quite a lot of detail. Um, but Tupperware was really important in um, unlocking our early conversations because. It's something that's ubiquitous. Most of us have come into contact with it um, some part of our lives and, and we recognise it straight away. Whereas had we started with um, one of the medical technologies, for example, or straight in with um, one of the storyboards that we'll go on to talk about, then I think we wouldn't have got the same... We uh, wouldn't be been able to facilitate and elicit the same sort of conversation because... Um, people wouldn't understand where their contribution would be. So you need to start in a simple way and then build up to um, overlay some of the research methodologies and some of the findings of the researcher. Um, So I think we, Gemma, um, would be able to say about this as well, uh, we, uh, Gemma Josie and I, spent a lot of time breaking down the constituent parts of the research so that we could create um, things that were closer to people's everyday experiences and then building in well, what does that actually mean? Let's unpick it further. Let's add in new technologies to that discussion. Let's add in uh, research um, as well. So having friendly
0: faces, having a relationship with people, I guess that's important for co-production work as well, Joe, isn't it? Um, you can't expect people to come in and co-produce something with you if they've never met you before. They haven't got a relationship with you equally. You can't necessarily expect people to come to the museum ready to perform. They need to be um, introduced to you and the ideas in advance so they feel comfortable and able to contribute. So friendly faces, friendly objects as well. So Tupperware might be an example of a friendly object that everyone can relate to. Um, It's part of um,
1: daily life for people. It's not something that you have to be an expert on. You can talk about it immediately. And it's interesting with co-production varying within museums to uh, medical spaces because ultimately we don't need to gather research in quite the same way. So um, you are probably, um, and you can say more about this, um, you have all these frameworks and uh, research methodologies that you need to uh, adapt your conversation to fulfil the end requir- research requirement whereas for us co-production can be um, it's a bit like I guess a joyride or um, or some sort of roller coaster um, I'm making it sound like it's always really tense it's not because of that at all but um, you get uh, massive highs and lows within co-production because sometimes your methods won't work mm. um, and you'll find that um, the start the trigger for the first conversation isn't the right thing so before we talked about Tupperware I was thinking oh dear, <laughs> like it's the silliest thing to talk about because actually what's, what's Tupperware got to do with me? But as soon as one person starts to talk in the room, then the conversation begins and then you need to then ask uh, facilitation questions, open-ended questions to then draw out why Tupperware, what is it that's bringing into our, into our everyday lives and then move into those more complex conversations from there.
0: And you can feel a bit silly sometimes having a, an in depth conversation about Tupperware. And certainly for us, when we kind of go back to our department um, and have very serious conversations about biomedical research, sometimes people kind of look at us a bit as if we were a bit strange that we were going to the museum talking about Tupperware. All those things just didn't add up to them so I think you have to
1: take a bit of a risk in a way Mm. I guess to to do some of this work. And that's why um, we talk a little bit about the messy method because Mm. it is messy because you can't predict what your research outcomes are going to be. I know that you should never do that anyway but ultimately you have a fair understanding of where you might go um, with your research whereas for us um, the messy method could go in lots of different directions and it's almost um, like a musical jam like you need to riff off each other because uh, and you need to have enough understanding of for you your research but for us the objects and and, What they can bring to the conversation, and how you one week might talk about Tupperware, but the next week you might talk about um, a totally different uh, uh, cultural reference point or object and and know enough around that object to be able to pull in um, things that help people and support and um, create a framework around the conversation. So it is that constantly active listening and also um, almost thinking one little step ahead. Uh, to think, oh, if you like that, you'll like that. Mm.
0: So engagement is necessarily open-ended, I guess, um, whereas research is is has to be much more structured. But within that, when we did do the engagement, we did have some, or you had some... Um, ways of making the process a little bit more structured and and supporting the process. And one of the things that I thought was so simple but so effective was the use of visual images. Um, And so we we did have people who had memory loss, memory problems, and we met several times over um, a period of about six to eight weeks. And a very simple um, way of connecting those sessions was to bring photographs into each session of the previous sessions. Um, And those photographs were photographs that we'd taken. I think you'd, you'd taken some of those, Beth but also photographs that the participants had taken themselves. So we had iPads and things that we took into the museum. And then you printed those out and had them just very, very naturally and very casually kind of on the tables so that people coming into the room who may have memory problems could be reminded just by seeing the photographs lying on the table, oh, this is what we did last time, this is what I did last time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was such a, you just did that kind of without even thinking about it, but it's something that I hadn't never thought of doing. doing and it worked really
1: really well really simple but really effective and it was interesting because actually although uh, primarily it was for people who might um, be experiencing memory loss actually I think um, that very simple method helps to uh, bring everyone into the room we all have really complicated lives where we're talking at very different levels and pitching um, information to each other in all sorts of ways. And so our brains are busy. And so therefore, um, for all of us to have the images and then a reintroduction going over what we'd done before and then what we were going to be doing in the session, I think helped all of us to kind of centre in on the time that we had together, which helped us to have a rich discussion. Mm.
0: So um, visual images were useful in other ways as well. So one of the um, ways in which we tried to make our research a bit more accessible, Joe, was using storyboards, Um, and I know that um, you've used storyboards in some of your co-production work. Can you explain what a storyboard is and how you you Mm. might create one?
2: Well, um, a storyboard is essentially a kind of pictorial representation of a scenario or um, an event, um, a bit like a comic strip. Um, And we found a very useful way, particularly in a kind of group workshop setting, to get everyone Um, within the room, on the same sort of playing field, you know, to develop a shared understanding or a common ground of what you're um, talking about. And, I mean, storyboards are used across all sorts of different disciplines, Um, you know, particularly within design. You know, designers use storyboards to try and communicate design concepts um, and try and get feedback on those design concepts. We adapted that method slightly So we used storyboards as a way of communicating and discussing people's experiences of assistive technology. So things like telecare, pendant alarms, and so on, and trying to use the storyboard as a way of describing a particular problem that people have with that device. And I suppose a a rule of thumb with the storyboard. It needs to have a coherent structure. And so generally it would consist of about five or six frames. And the first frame would introduce the characters. Um, the second frame would explain the setting, you know, or you know, give some account of the technology that that particular character is, is using. Um, Then the third frame would introduce the problem, so the types of problems people had. Um, And then the fourth and fifth frame would would be around how that problem was resolved or how people responded to that problem. And then the final frame is really around the outcome of that problem. So it just gives a nice coherent structure to that storyboard. Um, And we found it a very useful way of... um, helping communicate the types of issues that we were finding in our ethnographic data. Um, but also the visual layout of a storyboard is very helpful because people in the room can go back and refer to particular elements of the story um, for discussion. So even on that level as well, it's, it's very useful for supporting this kind of dialogue across the group. Across mm.
0: I think we use them in the Messy Realities work to maintain a connection between the discussions in the room and the museum collections and our research. So we 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 had big banners, our storyboards were on big pop-up banners that were kind of bigger than a person standing up, which were a good visual reminder to, I think, particularly to me and trying to and Beth and Josie trying to facilitate the discussion that our conversation would go in lots of interesting directions but we needed to come back to the to the research things that we were interested in exploring. So they were quite a good visual and um, presence in the room. And the process of creating them was really interesting for me. I've never done anything like that before. So I followed your kind of template of breaking up the story into different frames. And um, I actually worked with an illustrator, commissioned an illustrator, to draw some really lovely pictures. And we had some really interesting discussions about the nuances of how she portrayed the characters that we'd created. But you actually, in previous project, you actually drew your own pictures. Is that right? You did your own stories?
2: Yeah, right? I did, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it doesn't, if, if, if you can't draw, it's not necessarily a problem, because <laughs> the, the story we're getting across, so you could do stick yeah. men if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I use a, a technique that um, designers actually use as well, where you. You kind of trace, you get photos and then you trace and it gives a nice kind of very good quality um, image. So I, I managed to draw them. But those, those stories were, I mean, in some ways they're fictional. So, we, you know, we created the characters and, and, the, and the, the events, but they were very much rooted in actual people and actual events that we observed ourselves in our um, research data.
0: Yeah, so they were sort of um, compilations, if yeah. you like. So we came up with three characters: Alf, Rahim, and Jean. And none of those three people actually exist in real life, but they were made up of real people and real mm-hmm. events. And we kind of collated them into three kind of, if you like, ideal scenarios to illustrate our research things. I mean, Beth, do you? I, I don't know what you thought of the storyboards. And I don't don't know how effective they were in the in the
1: group. What do you? What was your response to those? I think that one of the participants, Jean, was like, it's absolutely me, actually. (laughs) I think you'll find that that's my life that you have there, um, teasing us, uh, which was really great to kind of hear her being so engaged with them but what um, I was going to say say, just interrupt you to say that we accidentally
0: chose a fictional name Jean which turned out to be the real name of a real person in the group
1: confusingly but also quite entertainingly yes yes yes, you had a lot of fun with the fact that you picked Jean as the name Mm -hmm. Um, and um, what I was going to say about the storyboards is actually they were really good for some of the group were um, almost non-verbal so although they were able to have conversation um, within the kind of group facilitation where it was much more as a a whole team of us discussing rather than one-to-one interactions Um, they wouldn't talk a lot but what the storyboards did was give them something to um, engage with and be part of um, without necessarily feeling that they straight away had to make a contribution and it gave them sort of settling in time time to kind of reflect and think about Um, the conversations that were happening in the room. So it was a really nice keying in point for people who weren't as comfortable and confident in sharing um, their feelings or understandings. So I thought that the story votes worked really well there. And I do think there was something really important for Gemma, Josie and I, that we were able to refer back to those because, as Gemma said, the conversation can go in all sorts of different directions and... To be able to rein it back to something that's uh, so visually accessible, um, that is accessible in all sorts of ways, was really, really important to uh, how positive the conversations were. So visual methods were really important.
0: We've talked about using photographs to connect sessions that take place over a period of time um, to remind people of what happened in previous sessions. We've also got the storyboards as a way of providing an accessible summary um, of research data and research findings for people that maybe have no experience of research. Um, And then another method that we used was was the handling of objects. And Beth, this is a a method you use all the time
1: in your your work. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what this involves? So um, objects in the Pitt Rivers are incredibly important. We have over 50,000 objects on display. And one of the ways that um, we make sure, because frustratingly, museum objects are generally behind glass. uh, So it means you can't feel the weight, you can't feel the textures. um, They are in isolation, they're outside of their context. So it's quite complicated for anyone to draw any kind of conclusions from an object. And so we have a handling collection of over a 1,000 objects um, from around the world um, that we use in our day-to-day to uh, allow people, enable people to... Um, touch, think and wonder about these objects Um, and one of the things uh, that I use a lot in my work because there's 50,000 objects I can't know them all Um, I hope no one knows them all because that that's a lot of intense knowledge to hold um, for one person. What we do is that I use a visual learning theory um, which was created in Harvard with school children to uh, see, think and wonder about objects and that gives us a scaffold or a framework to discuss objects from. So it's not me being a didact saying this is the object, this is where it comes from, being the only person that forms a narrative around it. So uh, we've talked a little bit about um, multivocality and the fact that there are multiple narratives and stories around every object and we all bring different contexts and understandings to them. But See, Think, Wonder actually says, actually, as the participant, as the other person looking at object... What do you see? And it starts it very simply because uh, it can be as obvious as the color, the shape, um, it can be a material thing. So, okay, so now you've seen those things, what's that making you think about? Um, And that helps you to start drawing out the conclusions. And through that scaffolding, you can add in little pieces of information. As you add those in, does that change the way that the person's thinking about their hypothesis for what the object is? Um, And so it's about that person drawing conclusions themselves rather than me telling them the actual answer. And then my favourite bit is the wonder question because there will be still things that you wonder about. I'm still wondering about all of these objects. I don't know everything to do with them. And so it's like, well, well... we're still wondering this, what are your questions? How else could you find out and understand this subject? What research would you go away and do? And that's empowering the person that you're talking to to go, oh, do you know what? Like, I could find that out for myself. Like, this person isn't the only repository of knowledge. Like, I can grow my knowledge on my own. And so um, it works for all sorts of age groups. And I think it's really lovely when you're working with people with... um, uh, memory problems because actually it's the same three set ways of working each time and it doesn't feel forced you're not saying oh do you remember that I said this to you you're actually saying well, what what can you tell me about this let's mm-hmm. start with the simplest thing and then add um, in information so that we can draw conclusions in a shared conversational way and it's not one-to-one it can be a whole group of people so um, I go into care homes and we can have 14 of us contributing ideas and there'll be people there who have really strong understandings and some of them have been anthropologists being in Oxford um, and so they know a lot about these objects but then there's other people who can lift it and say actually it's really heavy, it's really light, what's the material? So everyone in the room can make a contribution and so yeah. it works really
0: well. I've seen it. I was lucky enough to go to one of the outreach sessions and I saw one of um, your colleagues use this approach with a, a very mixed group of people. And what was great was that there were everyone could contribute, as you say, so people that had lots of language and lots of explanations could join in. But there were a couple of people in the group who didn't really have much language, but they were able to hold the object and position it. And through the way that they interacted with the object, they were still taking part in the group and could stimulate discussion. Mm-hmm. So it was a really accessible way Of engaging people that is something that you know I would never have known how to do as a a researcher but it was one of the benefits of working with you in the museum because you you bring these skills and these these kinds of um, expertise to the Greeks that we had um, one of the things that we did try and do that didn't work so well, um, I wanted to ask you about Beth, was that we thought that we did quite a lot of um, had quite a lot of discussions about amulets, and one of the things we thought people might like to do would be to do some craft and some making, and we actually you brought lots of craft
1: materials in, but people weren't that interested. Can mm. you say a little bit about something that maybe? didn't work Is that as yeah. an example of something that didn't work quite as yeah. well yeah it was interesting because some of the groups i've been to i know that they do craft making mm-hmm. um themselves stimulated by other um uh things that's in their everyday lives but we really struggled with this one because i thought oh we made we've talked about amulets we've looked at things that are uh, protect you from lightning we've looked at things that help you with your health needs we've led to all sorts of Um, everyday objects that have become um, amulets for us. So why don't we think about what are our health needs now? Can we create amulets that we could then embed in our everyday lives? Um, And actually, there was just a real um, backing away from that kind of creative expression. I think people were really happy to discuss, but when it came into craft making, there um, there was a clear... Um, one person was really interested and wanted to take materials away, but the rest of the group were um, reticent to to do the craft making. And I haven't got to the bottom of this yet, but um, the groups that I run across the museums with older people, when I talk about creativity, there's a lot of people when they think of it as... Uh, making that look at the floor and won't talk to me about it anymore and I think oh what is that like why have you stopped talking to me because we're creative every time we have conversations they are creative we're adding to our knowledge we're using our imaginations but when it came to physical craft making um we didn't get anywhere with that um and one of the things that I don't know if this is true this is my own thoughts on it is that When you see a lot, um, some making within care home settings or in day centres, it tends to go back to colouring in, Mm. um, sticking, things that are actually um, people are physically able to do, but actually could be seen as uh, a regression. So I know from personal experience, um, because my granddad has, Um, dementia that he was a fantastic artist Mm. i saw him being in a a craft making space Mm. or in um, an art group and he's sticking pom-poms to a christmas tree and he's um and he's doing things like that now like as carers that was really really hard for us to see um and so i think that maybe um the what we mean by creativity in the arts within um Particularly in older people's context, isn't always expressed as well as it could be. And sometimes it's slightly um, let down by the fact there hasn't been an explanation around why actually sometimes colouring activities are the right thing for that person in that moment. Um, and so I think there's quite a lot of nervousness from what I've, when I've talked to people about craft making because they're then thinking i'm going to ask them to do coloring in or sticking or gluing or you know cutting out Mm. things that aren't seen as appropriate to where they are in their lives in that moment um but that supposition, and I'm still trying to work out what that is. Well, what did
0: happen when we um, introduced some craft materials into the, um, the group setting is that people started talking about not things that they had made necessarily, but things that they had, had made for them. Mm-hmm. So rather than getting hands-on and doing gluing and sticking, they continued the conversation instead. So I think two things happened there. One is that we went with the flow, mm-hmm. and we didn't try and force an activity that people obviously weren't that keen on Um, and the second is that people picked up the idea and developed it through conversation rather than through doing in this instance so we ended up having a conversation about we started talking about jewelry that people had had commissioned Um, for them and we talked about the processes of um, commissioning a a piece of jewellery or or an object which was actually perhaps more relevant Mm -hmm. to those people's lives they are more likely to go out and purchase or commission Mm -hmm. something than make it themselves so we still had an interesting
1: conversation but it was um, we hadn't predicted how that conversation would unfold and actually I was going to add that often when I ask um, adults to be creative that accesses their imagination. And I think as adults, we're often given a prescribed way of doing things. So we have to demonstrate our competency Mm. at things. Whereas when you're working with family learning groups, as I do, like creativity, open-ended activity, being able to botch things together, being experimental and tinkering is so much more part of children's learning. Mm. Um, But as adults, I think where we have so long been prescribed where we're trying to get to, what we need to have created at the end of it to then be asked to do it ourselves is much more difficult. Whereas when you can, um, because you have an expectation of how wonderful it is. I know in my craft making at home, I always go for the most difficult thing first and then don't quite succeed in the way I want to. So I know what it's like to have that happen. Um, And so I think as adults, like commissioning someone that you know has a skill that you don't, accepting that you've got maybe a skills gap um is easier and um so the conversations we had around uh jewelry making i know um one of the ladies talked a lot about her um amulets all kind of things like that um and people had had amulets made for them that there was clearly an interest in that kind of amuletic uh use in our everyday lives but we just weren't going to do it ourselves Mm.
0: Exactly. So in terms of um, people that might be wanting to do some engagement in their research or people that might be helping researchers do some engagement, I guess there are some, um, some real learning points from our experience. So we've talked about needing to take a few risks and be a bit open-ended and be a bit fluid in terms of approach, not force things that maybe aren't working. Um, we've talked about using different kinds of um Uh, prompts and objects and different, uh, tapping into different senses, so visual and tactile, as well as looking at language and spoken word. Are there any other kind of key learning points that you would would say to other people trying to do this kind of research or or even thinking about co-production? What kinds of things do people need to bear in mind
1: if they're going to embark on this kind of enterprise? So I was going to say that actually it's about the relationships between the museum teams and the researchers. For museums, for a long time, researchers are this slightly scary set of people that know a lot more than you do about an area um, and have specialist subjects. And that actually is really incredibly powerful. But, you, but we have been trying to work out how we bridge those conversations, how we make sure that we're talking the same languages together. And I think with the mess realities, team and with the work that you all do it was a really natural fit because we could see where we had synergies around the work that we do and around your research work um and you were all really great people to work with who were incredibly engaging so I think getting the right people around the table is really important and I I wondered what it was like Joe for you coming into a museum space
2: yeah I mean I think I was I mean on the relationships point there's a relationship between People running workshops, and also the relationship formation with the um, with the participants mm-hmm. as well, and a lot of the stuff you've talked about, you know, touches on that. You know, how you really supported that dialogue and, and not make everything too formal. I think that's when people sort of shrink in and don't get involved. So it's maximising that kind of in, informality. Um, but I was I was as a researcher coming in, um, I was very struck by the synergy. With what you're doing, what we're doing, I, you know, I, 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 I knew the Pitt Rivers Museum, but it wasn't kind of um, clear to me at face value how that links in at all with health technology. So I was struck on day one by the synergy of, of, of these kind of materials and how they how they overlap, um, and also the um, the experiences and the skills that you've developed here within this kind of art museum. Context applies so much to the sc- types of skills that researchers need in terms of patient, patient and public involvement and co-production, and so on. So, um, yeah, I think that was what was most striking for me was just how how much overlap and similarity and mutual learning opportunity there is.
0: That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Beth and Joe. I think it really goes to show that if you're doing public engagement in research, to build up those relationships, go and see people that have got expertise in engaging with the public, like your museum colleagues and others. um, And to give it a go, it's good fun, it's been incredibly stimulating and inspiring. Um, And if you want to hear more about our work, then you can listen to the rest of the podcast series.